Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody. How are you doing today? I hope your holiday was awesome. Mine was spectacular. You're listening to Hunter Rogeles, the podcast, independent music focused on like punk, hardcore, all of those things that you love that fall under the DIY principles and playing in small, sweaty rooms, just the, the things that give you life, right? Today is a, a twofer. We actually have two conversations. The main bulk of the interview is Aaron Gillespie. He is uh, the drummer for Under Oath and the frontman for The Almost. And I was really excited to have this conversation because um, it, it came across my desk and I was like, you know what? I, um, I, I don't like to do stuff in certain press cycles because, you know, people kind of get in certain rhythms and talking points. But uh, within like, three minutes of me talking to Aaron, I realized that, uh, he doesn't do that. <laughs> and he was just ready to hang, loves doing podcasts. And we got in really, really, really deep with, uh, under oath and, you know, all of their, um, interesting times during the define the great line era, which I found so captivating. Cause I love that record personally. And I know it bummed a lot of under oath fans out because it was so heavy and so aggressive and not popular, like what a lot of people imagine them to be. And so, uh, and we kind of talked about them not being a cool band, uh, because, you know, they were interested in bands like, you know, Cult of Luna and ISIS and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, they just, none of those bands would go on tour with them because, um, you know, they just didn't have the same sort of, uh, I guess, aesthetic and fan base and all that other stuff. But anyways, the second part of the conversation, which actually I'm airing first is Frankie. His name is Frankie, and I actually don't know how to say his last name. Blyderberg, I think that's how you say it. But most importantly, he is one of the co-owners of Rockabilia. You've heard me espouse the awesomeness that is Rockabilia, but I wanted to have him on because I wanted to talk about merch. It's something that most people obviously own a ton of band shirts, but they don't really know the ins and outs of, you know, printing stuff and ordering stuff and running companies. And I wanted to have Frankie on, um, not only just because I'm a huge fan of the company, but, uh, you know, talk about bootleg stuff, talk about, uh, you know, just sort of that cotton culture as it were, cause he worked at hot topic as well. And just has a lot of insight. So that is a nice little 20 minute conversation up top. And then, uh, yeah, Aaron Gillespie will be in, you know, probably about 30, 35 minutes, uh, into this episode. So if you need to skip ahead for whatever reason, which I don't think you should, because the conversation with Frankie is awesome. So, um, I'm not going to go on and tell you about a bunch of other things because we have a jam packed episode. So two conversations for the price of one, you didn't pay anything, <laughs> but, uh, here's Frankie up top from Rockabilia and then Aaron Gillespie 
from Under Oath and The Almost. And The Almost has a new record out, which you need to check out. And Under Oath released a awesome record earlier this year on Fearless. And you need to check out both of those things, okay? So here are the two conversations and enjoy both of them. And I'll talk to you at the very, very tail end of the episode to tell you what's happening next week, okay? Peace. You know, prior to knowing you, obviously, I knew about Rockabilia forever, just because it's one of those companies that you always feel has like been around. Like the moment you find out about independent music, you start to see, you know, the ads or you just start to see, oh, yeah, Rockabilia. Um, Exactly. Yep. And, it, and it's such a good name. Like, <laughs> I just, yeah, it really is. Right. <laughs> and so then after I got, you know, connected to you and understood the fact, it's like, oh, oh, I didn't know that there was like a familiarity inside the company, obviously of punk and hardcore, which, you know, one would assume, but I just didn't know. Um, yeah. You never know, especially because nowadays there's just so many like merch companies and yeah, it's hard to kind of keep them all straight and know who's working where and all that good stuff. Right, right, too. And yeah, that that's actually a thread I'll pull on later in regards to, you know, so many merch companies or whatever. Um, yeah. But, you know, so I, I guess, like, how, how long have you worked at Rockabilia? And I, I guess how long, you know, have you been sort of involved with that company? Yeah, for sure. So the company was actually formed in 1987. So I'm 36. So I was in diapers at that point, right? Or maybe maybe you're not in diapers at four. Yeah, you, are you? Eh, <laughs> I, I, I I think you're transitioning out of it. But boys are slow to develop, so I'll yeah. assume you're on your way out. I have a three and a half year old right now, uh, daughter, but she is definitely not in diapers. But you just never know. I could have been, I guess. Yeah. But anyways. Um, so the company was formed in 1987, and I went to, I was just always super into music, probably got into music at like age nine or 10, just kind of consumed my life always. And then right after high school, I went to college at a place called McNally Smith College of Music, and I went there for music business um, during this whole time too. I wanted to be in a band. Obviously, that was like, you know, it's every kid's dream to be a rock star. Sure. I was doing that. You know, I I also just loved the business aspect of music, whether it was booking shows and tours or, you know, kind of like just picking a lineup for a CD release show. Just really was super into all that stuff. And, you know, I never was like interested in the recording aspect of music. Um, it just always seemed very tedious to me and you just got to have a lot of patience and really love that aspect of the job. So I didn't want to go into school for that. So I kind of focused in on the business side of things. So I did that after I graduated, I just got internships everywhere I could because obviously it's, it's super hard to, to get a job in music, especially in Minnesota where the companies are few and far between. Mm -hmm. So I know I got an internship at ADA Distribution, which was in the uh, Warner Brothers office. Um, So I did that for a while. I ended up working at a place called Liquid 8 Records, which I don't know if you are familiar with. No, I've not heard of that, no. So it was so weird. They had a 
crazy roster. Um, the reason why I was brought on was for Fear Factory. Oh, they wanted okay. like a rock guy, guy familiar with metal, to kind of work that record. Um, but they also had Midnight Oil. <laughs> okay. All these super random bands that were all big names, but it's just the roster didn't make any sense. Uh, they went out of business Got it. a few years later. Um, but that's a whole other story. Sure. So anyway, so I did that and then I ended up working at like a radio promotions company and same thing. They were working this new metal band who was really bad and they're still around. So I'm not going to name the name, <laughs> but no problem. I basically, yeah, same thing. They wanted a rock metal guy to come in, call radio stations across the country and try to get them to play this song. And it was, Seriously, just horrible because, you know, I had to pretend that this this track was awesome and the feedback that I got from everyone that would actually take your call was that it was horrible. Sure. So that was just like kind of a nail in the coffin that I knew I didn't want to go down that road. Um, and at this time, too, I was running a like a little indie hardcore metal label with a friend of mine. And so that was kind of the dream is to get that to like a full-time status. But, you know, as I'm sure you know, that grind, it, it just didn't really pan out for one reason or another. Yep. So while, while I was working on that, though, I, I was just trying to find any company in Minnesota that had anything to do with music. And I remember that, you know, just as like a kid in junior high, high school, ordering merch through Rockabilia, and I always kind of made note that it was in Minnesota, but I didn't know much else aside from that. So basically, I just kind of cold called them one day, and I got like the, kind of like the buyer of the company on the phone, and it was just super short and cold, and just like, no, we're not hiring, pretty much hung up. (laughs) And every day for like, I want to say like a week or something. I just kept calling over there and literally just begged for a job. And finally, he uh, he's like, yeah, I guess just come down here and we can drive a forklift or something. Which I think he was just kind of messing with me because we didn't even have a forklift at that time. <laughs> sure. So I ended up uh, coming to work here. And um, it was right before the holiday season started, so they kind of just put me to work in the warehouse pulling orders and, you know, receiving orders and stuff like that. And then eventually after really just like getting through that holiday season, you know, I was bringing a ton of ideas to one of the owners of the company and he ended up basically replacing me with the guy that hired me (laughs) in the first place. So he got let go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, I kind of took his spot, was that guy's assistant for about a year. And then I really, at this time, like, I wanted to get out to California. I was always obsessed with Orange County. Uh, I think that was around the time that the show was really big, too. So it was like you had the OC and then all these Orange County metalcore bands that were just popping off. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It was like, you know, the age of Avenged Sevenfold and Atreyu and all that. Yep. I was just really super into it. So I ended up uh, just kind of the same thing, just like 
hitting up every company and connection that I had made through buying here. And eventually I, you know, I wanted to be in a band out there too. So I was talking to bands out there that needed drummers and kind of lined everything up and came out there. I was the assistant rock tea buyer for Hot Topic for like a year. Who did you, who did you work with at Hot Topic? Was it with? Um, yeah. So my boss was Missy. Oh, okay. Her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, the, yeah. I, I, because I, I mean, at that time, so it was, that was probably like what, or like early mid two thousands or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Two thousand six. Okay. I yeah. There's like you know Jay Adelberg. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Of exactly. Yeah, yep. yeah. 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 That's cool. Um, I, I had no yeah, idea. Yeah, Misty Paul. Yeah, for sure. So it was a really good learning experience. I was out there for probably a year, and then um, my old boss was just trying to get me back that whole time. And my wife, uh, then girlfriend at the time, she just wasn't really feeling the the uh, L.A. Orange County lifestyle. It's hard. And I also kind of found, yeah, I mean, she's a hairstylist too. So like when we moved out there, it was totally different for her because you have to like, I think, apprentice under somebody for two years or something before they actually let you out on your own. So she was kind of established here and then had to start all over when we moved out there. So I know she just had a harder time with it. And we were young at the time too. I mean, you know, early and mid twenties. So it's, it's much different than it would be now probably. But anyway, so I ended up getting, um, you know, a better offer for more money to come back to Minnesota. So I did that. And then, um, you know, I, I was just like, still doing the band thing and touring on the side and then, but still completely laser focused on this as well. And, uh, that guy basically left the company in 2017. He decided to retire and there's just kind of a host of things going on. And I was able to basically take his spot and yeah. So that's why kind of to the, the direction of the company is, you know, is, changed a lot since then I would say Um, that's maybe why you only saw print ads and not really much else Um, he was just very old school in in kind of the way that the message got across but obviously the world has changed a lot since then so since 2017 it's just kind of been you know reinventing the company so to speak yeah, no, that's really, that's, that's, that's really cool. And I, I like, I mean, I appreciate you telling that story because I think it just shows the, you know, <laughs> when you do get that, that bug of just being like, well, I want to be involved in music. I'm not sure. Like, I know the areas that I don't want to be involved with, like you were talking about exactly. recording or whatever, but you're like, I'll figure out something, you know, that's attached yeah. to music. And I think a lot of people go through that journey because I, I think so many people get, the idea in their head that they need to do like, Oh, I need to do like, you know, A and R or, you know, social media management or whatever. And it's like, well, you know, like you got to look elsewhere. Like (laughs) you have to be able to have more than one target. Um, because then, you know, ultimately you'll just either be disappointed because you're only looking for that and not looking for anything else. So it's cool that you were able to, you know, kind of have that holistic focus. For sure. Yeah. And I remember too, like going to McNally Smith, Everyone just said they wanted to be, you know, in A&R. Yeah. That's it. That was, like, the answer. Um, but it worked out, too, because at this, like, during all of this, you know, obviously, like, the physical CD and that whole world was totally tanking, but merch was just 
going up and up. And I've always been completely obsessed with band t-shirts and just merch in general. So it yeah. really totally worked out. Like, no, it, I mean, perfectly. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. It's like, there was always that, uh, you know, when I was at Century Media, there was, uh, cause I mean, I worked there from like early two thousands until I left like 2009 or so. And so I completely saw that and just the idea that, you know, I remember as our contracts evolved where, you know, we were always asking for, you know, whatever, two, three merch designs per contract. But then as things started to change, the bare minimum we'd be looking for is like five designs. <laughs> and then sometimes, right. and it would just, it just kept creeping up where I was like, dude, there's no way I'm going to get a band to sign off for 10 designs. <laughs> like that's just yeah, not, definitely. Uh, but it was like, well, you know, we know we're not going to sell CDs, but we know that we're going to at least be able to, you know, push these, these five designs or whatever. And yeah, it, I, I completely understand. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, the, uh, you're, you're kind of, like you said, you're always sort of obsessed with music. Um, you know, how, I guess, how did that come in your life? Was that, you know, via, you know, just friends? Was that, uh, you know, watching MTV? Like, how did that kind of seep into you? Yeah. Like originally like alternative and just rock music is, you know, obviously what like first got me into everything. That was the starting point. I remember my first concert was Stone Temple Pilots with Meat Puppets and Red Cross. Oh, wow. That's a good one. Yeah. And I think I was like 10 or 11, maybe. I'm not really sure, but it was early 90s, you know, early to mid 90s. And I was just, you know, like every kid, it was Pearl Jam, Green Day, stuff like that. I think the first CD I ever bought was uh, Green Jelly. Oh, yeah. Oh, dude, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. It was just because of the artwork, too. Yeah, you know? oh, of course. I, totally. Yeah. I remember seeing just like the BMG ads and just just being really into like band artwork and logos and things like that. It just I was just drawn to it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I remember, I think, I don't know why I have this really distinct memory in, uh, I, I want to say I was in high school, but like a friend of mine, because Green Jelly or Jello in Los Angeles was like really, they were really popular. Like they play, you know, I mean, I know they were popular everywhere, but like in LA, it was crazy. So I think at one point they opened up their warehouse during like the, um, you know, Halloween season and they would have people on like, I mean, it's such a fleeting memory. I want to say it was like sort of like a haunted house, but at the same time, it was also just like, yo, you get to check out Green Jello's like ridiculous costumes and stuff. And I remember going there and I remember like I, I didn't I knew of the band, but I wasn't like a super fan. But one of my friends was. And I just remember being like, dude, this band's insane. But this I can't even believe that like <laughs> we're able to see this. And so but it was like open to the general public. It was such a weird thing. <laughs> But they're That's amazing. Yeah, it was so, it was so bizarre. But it just, I mean, it reminded me in the same way that obviously, you know, people compare to Guar or whatever, where it's like, oh yeah, touring their warehouse in Richmond, Virginia would be rad. And so, yeah, definitely. But yeah, um, awesome. and and so as you were, um, you know, becoming, you know, more entrenched in sort of the, you know, independent music scene, like you said, you were putting out records and you know, doing all this sort of stuff. Um, was was the idea that. Um, you know, you were going to, you know, like you said, do the label from a full-time perspective. Like how many records did you end up putting out? Would you put out like, you know, seven inches and in EPs or what, what, what did you do? Uh, yeah, we put out, I want to say like maybe a dozen releases. Oh, nice. What was the name of the label? If you don't mind me. Uh, asking. Was, yeah, no, it was called feeling faint. I, 
that's the, that sounds familiar. I mean, were you ever distroed through like lumberjack or anything like that? Or, so or we definitely like all of our releases were available through all those outlets. Okay. And we were never able to get like a distro deal, which I know back in the day, that was kind of the goal for everybody. <laughs> yeah. It's the Holy grail. Right, right, right. Yeah. And we just, for some reason we, we couldn't get it. And that was kind of one of the, the breaking points that just after that many releases, we still couldn't get distro, which just seems ridiculous now. <laughs> right. Yeah, you're like, dude, can you please, we've, we've got at least 10 records. Like, come on, stock them. <laughs> well, especially because all those companies went out of business. Totally. Absolutely. So, yeah. 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 Um, it's just kind of funny looking back, but now we put out like, um, we put out one of the nodes releases, nodes of reindeer. Oh, of course. South Dakota. Yeah. yeah. We put out, one of their releases on vinyl. I think that was the only vinyl we ever did. So everything else was CDs. Nice. Uh, we ended up putting out um, like the original vocalist of Martyr AD, his second band called Enola Gray. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I knew it. Cause I mean, you said the name of the label, the label and you know, of course I have to remember everything that, uh, you know, is remotely attached to hardcore because you know, that's just the way my dumb brain works. So <laughs> sure. No, I remember like we even were kind of looking up, uh, cause I remember you working at century media as well Yeah. because I think you signed like devil inside, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, uh, we were always just kind of, you know, trying to see what all the labels in the scene were doing around that time and everything. So, yeah, yeah no, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, the, the something I've always found interesting since we, you know, started to like uh, work together more closely with the podcast and stuff was the, um, you know, uh, the, the talking point, And it's true of the, you know, officially licensed merch. And it's one of those things where, you know, people like you and I who have been involved in buying merch and for a long time, we understand that concept, but at the same time, I kind of honestly forgot about that. And I forgot how strong the bootleg game game is just in general. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I know this isn't really a, a simple question per se, but it's like, do you think, I guess, bootlegging has gotten worse over time with the proliferation of the internet? Has it been, you know, curbed to a certain extent or, you know, how, what's your view on that? Oh yeah. So, um, basically when I first got into like Rockabilia and Hot Topic and the whole merch side of the business, it was kind of a running joke that, you know, at the trade shows and all these events were kind of the get togethers where everyone would basically say that, you know, we lucked out, um, you know, you can't download a t-shirt was basically the, the running joke. So we're all safe. And then fast forward, and obviously, like, bootleg merch has always been a thing, but it's it's a lot different when it's somebody in a parking lot, like, you know, trying to sell the half-off version of the tour shirt that you see inside the venue or whatever. And now, since basically, I want to say three or four years ago, um, Amazon opened up their marketplace to China. And ever since then you kind of had the perfect storm of that happening and Alibaba coming to the U S as well. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with what that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So you have those two and then basically just the technology of direct to garment printing, digital printing. So you don't even need a screen print shop with minimums and all that anymore. You can just print off a shirt at home basically. So kind of what I say is that 
what was happening with the recording side of the industry many years ago is pretty much what's happening to merch right now. So it, it's kind of crazy because you don't hear a lot of bands actively taking the torch and getting pissed off about this and, you know, talking about it online. But I think everyone is kind of scared to take the first step and they don't want to look like Lars from Metallica with the whole Napster <laughs> back in the day. Sure. I, I mean, I think that's, I don't know what else it could be. But every band, like literally everybody, no matter how small you are, is getting completely ripped off online. And I'm sure you've seen like all these Facebook ads and Instagram ads where 90% of them are all just, you know, China bootlegs. Right. That's it. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's really crazy right now. It's um, definitely the worst it's ever been for sure. Wow. Yeah. I I mean, it's, I guess I just don't... um I don't think of it because uh, obviously being, you know, of a certain age and older, like, you know, you're a more savvy consumer when you're, you know, over the age of 30 or even 20 for that matter. But, you know, when you're whatever, 14 or 15, you get hit, you know, you get hit by those and you're just like, oh, yeah, like, dude, of course I'll take this, you know, misfit shirt. And then you wash it once and then it's like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) I don't have I just have a blank T-shirt now. Um, Definitely. Well, especially nowadays, too. I mean, it's completely different because, like I said, a a sketchy guy coming up to you in a parking lot after a show, I mean, everyone kind of has the intuition to say that that's not right. You know what I mean? It's it's not normal. But when it's Facebook and Instagram and these huge trusted companies that are pumping this stuff out or allowing it to happen, it's a totally different game where I think everyone, you know, fake news, right? It's like everyone sees something on Facebook and they just believe it to be true and real. And yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, for sure. And, and I, I, I think that's, you know, the reason that I brought that up is because, like I said, I didn't consider that for a long time. But then thinking about it, it's like, oh, yes, like there, you know, there are so many official channels that uh, need to be taken into consideration, not only for the quality of merch, but the fact that like, you know, bands are literally getting paid for every piece of merchandise that gets sold through, you know, Rockabilia and obviously all the other legitimate companies, as opposed to like, I mean, dude, I, I remember when I was working at an independent record store here in Orange County, we had tons of like, you know, those bootleg uh, window decals. Like my bosses literally printed <laughs> them. And it was one of those things I, I so distinctly remember Davey Havoc coming in and looking at these like three or four AFI stickers because they, you know, they were visiting Nitro Records in Huntington and I, that, that's where the record store was. And I was yeah. just like, you know, he was like, hey, I've never seen these before. And I was like, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, because they're not they're not legitimate. <laughs> and I just like, gave, oh, man, I just like gave him. I'm just like, here, here, take take some. He's like, no, it's cool. I don't I don't care. I'm just but in my head, I'm like, yeah, but we sell like, you know, at least twenty dollars worth a week of this stuff. And, you know, you should see a little <laughs> bit of that. But yeah, it's just I don't I just don't know if people consider bootlegging to be an issue. And like you said, obviously, because bands aren't saying anything about it in general, then, um, you know, it's just kind of that silent, that silent killer that it's happening. Well, it's funny because like the story you just told, I mean, even if you take a band like the Grateful Dead, who they've always kind of allowed bootlegging to happen because they see it as more, you know, letting their fans take art direction and just be creative with their stuff. So, and, and that's completely different, I think, than, what's going on now. Um, it's just with technology and everything. It's just so easy to rip anything off. And, you know, unfortunately it's not even just band merch. It's literally like everything. 
Yeah. Oh uh, no. Some real scary stuff like bike helmets and airplane parts and yeah. stuff that's just like terrifying to think about, you know? No, totally, totally. All in the name of, you know, cutting a cost or, you know, making it easy for a person to buy to scam them or whatever. Yeah, it's it's rough. For um, sure. You know, on the, I guess, on the polar opposite side of things, um, you know, now that you've kind of experienced so many different sides of the industry and working at different companies and stuff like that, what do you, I, I guess, like the most or enjoy the most about, you know, your job? Is it the fact that, you know, you obviously have a lot of, you know, leeway to kind of control the uh, company as far as the way it's publicly perceived? Is it, you know, working directly with artists? What's, uh, you know, what's kind of your, your North Star, as it were? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in general, ever since I was a little kid, I've just been completely obsessed with, like, you know, pop culture, consumer products. I mean, I remember as a kid, like, even being really into the Batman Returns cereal and, like I said, just buying, you know, cream jelly because of the the artwork. So to be kind of in that world of just getting to look at band shirts all day and buy them and all that good stuff. It's, it's just a huge passion of mine. I mean, I would be doing it probably as just a hobby if it wasn't my career. So that's probably the main thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I love, you know, I love kind of like the product development side of things when we do an exclusive with a band and just having an idea and bringing it straight to management or whoever it might be in each scenario is a little different but yeah i mean I, I really love every aspect of it for sure um it's it's great that's cool yeah no it, it is i do like that 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 feeling of you know being behind the curtain and like either seeing something for the first time listening to something you know if it's like a band that turns in their master and like you know it's like whatever 10 people have heard it and you're like you just feel that excitement of like, wow, I'm hearing this and I'm reacting to this in real time in the same way that, you know, you're looking at a t-shirt for the first time where it's like, wow, this is really cool. Or like, actually let's, uh, maybe we should tweak it this way or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of like, you know, to, to bring up AFI again, the band that got me into hardcore and it was because of that visual experience of literally just like, fashion and music he was you know it was one of the early videos where it's all black and white and he's x'd up and he's wearing like a white shirt and black dickies and it just totally resonated with me so just like looking at that aspect of the music industry as well just that you know the fashion the visual aspect of it and that's kind of what pulled me in for a lot of bands really Sure. Yeah. Well, especially too, it's like once the medium changed from people being able to, you know, view music videos and obviously now with the proliferation of YouTube and the fact that, you know, people don't even need to go to shows to actually see like, you know, uh, a professionally, you know, seven camera filmed, you know, uh, hardcore band or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's like that, that visuals, you know, really like, I mean, even so like, you know, that band vein where it's like, whatever when they when they played this is hardcore i want to say two years ago where it's like you know having all their friends wearing their you know vein windbreakers and everyone moshing and going off and it was like that is what you know really made a lot of people pay attention to them and it was like it's it's the visuals you know it's people see it and they're like okay yeah the music is cool but like when you put it together with something visual whether it's a design or like you said whether it's you know watching a music video it really then just like kind of you know puts the whole package together for sure. Yeah, I've always been into like the more theatrical hardcore bands like 18 Visions was probably always my favorite just because they were they kind of like took that, you know, hardcore mentality but blew it up and 
just came off like this huge arena rock band. And I've always been kind of, you know, very uh, gravitated towards that stuff. No, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes it, it makes sense because I mean, especially too, where it's like when you are removed from that particular scene or whatever, and you're not, you know, you don't know these people as humans. I mean, eventually you do, but you know, you, you're, you in Minnesota watching this and being like, wow, do these guys like, you know, seem bigger than life. And then, you know, I just know them to be, you know, some, some dorks from Huntington beach or whatever. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, it really, it, it helps. And obviously when you kind of, you know, punch above your weight, uh, and you have kind of a, a, th- a thematic element to your band, it makes it, like you said, just so much cooler and like, Oh wow. Like that's really, really neat. For sure. Yeah. It's funny actually. Cause I asked my wife last night, what show because we met at a venue called the fireball oh dude St. paul absolutely played and, yeah absolutely played there yeah. with uh gosh it was i want to say it was a uh seconds before i think one of the carl skidham from i think it was from harvest and a bunch of other bands anyways but yeah, yeah. such a rad venue well so i asked her last night i'm like did we meet at a taken show at the fireball or who was who was playing that show and she's like oh i don't think it was taken i think they were they were too big to play the fireball. (laughs) (laughs) No, we actually think Ray will get a kick out of that. uh, Yeah. Yeah. We will. We were not too big for that. We, I want to say, yeah, we only played there once, I think, but, and I, I want to say it was with, um, gosh, who else was it with? I'll have to look back at my, my archives, but I remember it being such a, a fun show and us staying with a friend who, for whatever reason, had access to like this crazy, ridiculous house. And we stayed at his house for, you know, multiple days and it was great, but yeah, that's, that's awesome. Did you ever play seventh street? Uh, Oh, that sounds familiar, but I don't, I don't know if we did like, I want to say with the, the fire, actually the fireball cafe show, I think might have been season of fires first show. So I think that they played that show seventh street. I remember the name of the venue, but I don't think we played there. Gotcha. Yeah. I, it's the whole like timeline and a lot of it's very foggy, but I remember, I think your like original drummer was in bleeding through, right? 100% correct. Yep. Okay, yeah. So I think it was maybe Bleeding Through's like first tour ever. Oh where yeah. Where your drummer was playing for them and I think VJ was in the band too, yeah. who I would later <laughs> go on to work with and That's so it's funny. just crazy how yeah, it all just kind of ties together at the end. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um the uh the the last thing I want to hit on was the um you know, in working at a uh, cuz how many people work at Rockabilia like in total? Um, it's usually around 20. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's a small business for all stretches of the imagination. Um, you know, do, doing a small business and being able to, you know, operate that and, you know, work with, you know, different personalities, not only internally, but externally and kind of juggling all this stuff. Um, you know, do you feel, I mean, like you said, you've always been interested in the kind of business side of things. So you, you know, I'm sure felt prepared to kind of handle, you know, some of these moving parts at least, um, Mm -hmm. What, what do you feel, I guess, you know, now that you're in the position that you're in, um, you know, what's kind of, uh, the biggest challenge for you beyond just what we were talking about previously of, you know, the way the merch industry is changing right now. Um, what, what do you kind of feel like is a, you know, a challenge for you at this point? Um, well, I think a lot of it is just, they're the same challenges that everybody is dealing with right now. Right. Um, there's just so much media. There's everybody's getting hit on Instagram, Facebook, by this, by that. So it's just finding different ways to kind of connect to people and basically, you know, 
sell them something without actually just saying, hey, buy this. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just kind of like as the world is changing so fast now. Um, I don't know if that's just like us getting older and feeling it more, but it, it just seems like every day the algorithm changes and this changes and you just, you're constantly having to kind of adapt and go with the flow. And it, it's just basically everything is changing on a daily basis. So externally, I would say that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, and then just being a small company, it's like, I have my hands in everything from buying to marketing to all that. So it's just, yeah, it, it's very like, can be very stressful, you know? Sure. Like, You're wearing all the hats. So many. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And I'm um, just trying to juggle all of it. But, you know, it just goes back to the fact that I love this world and what I do. So it doesn't really feel like work yeah. a lot of times. Totally. Um, even though it is, but it, it's just kind of blends together with your identity and your personal life so much that it, it all just kind of becomes one. Right. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, it totally does. Uh, that's good long term, but it, yeah. it's definitely, it is what it is, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the path you've chosen. Um, the last anecdotal thing, because I always find this interesting where, um, you know, what, what's the, uh, you know, it doesn't even have to be a specific band or whatever. What is the thing that, you know, you guys like launched or put out there or whatever, where in your head you were kind of like, I don't know about this. And then all of a sudden it was like really successful or vice versa where you were like, Oh man, I, you know, I think this is going to kill it. And then it totally doesn't, <laughs> you know, cause that happens to everybody. Like no one is obviously a, uh, you know, future reader or whatever. Um, do you have any examples like that of where you were like, Oh yeah, either, you know, positive or, you know, negative. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, I, as far as positives go, I love doing anything with the misfits. Um, sure. they're just such an awesome, great band to work with. They're super hands-on. They, you know, the manager, like he's just a really great guy and is super in tune with the art world and all that. So, you know, we can connect on all that stuff very easily. So doing exclusive stuff with them is always really fun, especially they've been one of my favorite bands since, you know, high school. So that's always kind of like a pinch me moment to get to work with them. So directly, um, on the flip side, I would say, I don't know if I should tell this story, but I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> sure. Uh, we basically, oh, it's, it's really long. Um, basically the, the website metal sucks put out this fake article years ago. And it was basically a, an image of an anthrax Hanukkah sweater. Okay. And it was when like the whole holidays, Christmas sweaters for bands was just blowing up and everyone was doing one. So they released this joke article about, uh, anthrax releases Hanukkah sweater. And I thought it was hilarious. I was going to buy it even though, you know, I'm not Jewish or anything, but sure. I clicked like the link to buy and it was very like clear that it was just a joke. So I sent that article to the band's merch company and I said, hey, can we make this a reality? I think it would sell really well. And then they showed it to the band and the band's management and everyone thought it was hilarious and basically said, yeah, go for it. So we end up doing this, uh, this like limited edition exclusive run of this Hanukkah sweater 
And, you know, we got Scott Ian to wear it and post photos and everything. <laughs> yeah. It was selling super well. And then all of a sudden, um, I get a call one day and it was this lady who says she's a reporter with the, somewhere in Detroit. And she said, hey, I need a quote from you uh, about the lawsuit that was just filed against you guys. Oh. And I go, I don't know what you're talking about, you know? And she said, well, it uh, looks like you and the band Anthrax just got sued by a company here in Detroit over a Hanukkah sweater. And I was just like, okay, I don't know <laughs> anything about this. Right, right, right. So I basically just told her just a very short, yeah, I mean, we're a retailer. We bought it from the band's merch company. It's completely official. I don't really know what you're talking about. Then I called them, and basically the response was just, yeah, we've never heard of that publication. I wouldn't worry too much about it. So then fast forward to that night, I am at the gym, and my phone starts blowing up like, dude, you're famous. You're on Blabbermouth what are you talking about? So I clicked the link and it was basically anthrax gets hit with million dollar lawsuit over a Hanukkah sweater. And I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. You know? So basically what had happened is when metal sucks did the article, they just took this generic Hanukkah sweater that they found on Google image search. And they literally just slapped the anthrax logo on it. And no one actually, Design. design (laughs) And it was, you know, somebody had a copyright on it. And it was a total mistake. We all felt terrible about it. And of course, you know, in a situation like that, everyone goes after the band and says the band members are thieves and all this. And it just one of those things where it's totally blown out of proportion. But I remember dealing with that for, you know, a couple weeks straight of lawyers and trying to get, you know, all the press that had been put out there on Lamb Goat and sites like that taken down, and, or at least, you know. Yeah, this was an accident. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, this was an, an innocent mistake. It, you know, yeah. it came from a good place. Like, we just thought it was funny. Blah, blah, yeah, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I would say that's definitely the worst. Yeah, <laughs> I would I would agree with you, Frankie. <laughs> Knock on wood. Knock on wood. Yes, exactly. Let, let, let that be the pinnacle of your worstness. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> well, dude, this has been so much fun. Thank you very much for hanging out. And uh, yeah, yeah, I appreciate you. Thanks doing for this. having me, man. Soundrink.com is the place to find all of your unbelievable VIP tour package experiences. Like you've seen these out now, you know, they've existed for the past couple of years and many tours, um, you know, offer that as a added value where it's like, okay, you know, you pay 10 or $15 more and you get this really cool experience. There's a lot of companies offering that sort of stuff, but Soundrink has it completely dialed in. So if you wanted to have coffee with your favorite band, or if you wanted to have a super, super intimate Q and a or acoustic session, Soundrink works specifically with these bands to develop these packages. This isn't like some, you know, cut and paste thing where, all right, every band has this experience and boom, here we go. Here's the tour. They work with the management, with the bands to make sure they are giving the most true to life experience. Like I've seen a few of these go off and they're awesome. Like they're just such a, a rad way to get to know these bands and your favorite band members a little bit more than just obviously seeing them on stage and realize like they're just humans like me. So it's a really, really awesome experience that brings these bands 
to a closer, more tangible, real thing than anything else you could experience. So go to soundrink.com and find your favorite artists, upcoming tours near you. Soundrink knows what's up and they run it seamlessly and smoothly. So soundrink.com, do it up. So, you know, early 2000s, I was working at a record store here in Southern California. Um, and, you know, we started to sell a ton of your, you know, Christ from the Past EP. Like people were, you know, loving it. It was like, dude, we can't keep this in oh, stock wow. from Takeover Records, man. This is unbelievable. Um, <laughs> I, and I enjoyed it myself. Like, you know, I'm very involved in the hardcore scene, playing in bands and stuff like that. And I was like, this is cool because this is like incredibly ambitious because they're trying to throw every influence you could tell that they have into a blender. And right. in my opinion, and tell me this is, you know, not really an open-ended question, but tell me what you think about this kind of working theory I have where really I think because of your youth and, you know, like when you're young, you don't know any different. So you just kind of like want to show everything you can do and not, not in like a, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm really talented. I, I could, I could combine all these styles, but just like, you don't know any better. And you're like, well, yes, I like black metal and I also like hardcore and I also like pop punk. Like, let's throw it all in. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't, I, so I have a, I have a son who I don't really talk about because um, people are crazy, but uh, in this format, I don't mind. He's seven. And, uh, you know, if I have somebody over, like say my wife and I have someone over for dinner, right. He will come out into the living room and he'll show them like his star Wars toy like his dog and like, you know, a drawing he did at school that day. You know what I mean? Like three completely separate things. And I think that's what happens when you're young and you're making music is you, you just do it all. You throw it all into a pot. And you're like, look at this, you know? And, and, and I find myself telling my son, I'm like, can hey, just bring out Star Wars toy? You don't need to bring out like the Star Wars toy, the drawing you did and your dog. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like you don't need to bring all three things, all three things out. But I also think, you know, that was 2002 or whatever. Like, I think that we had just became a band and I think that like, you know, it's like there was innocence then, which sounds ridiculous. And sounds like I'm being like an old sage, like, Hey, like, but you know, like back then there wasn't the internet really like there is now. Mm -hmm. Um, and there wasn't like a, there wasn't, like a pretense. And I think that that's why we have, like we have this conversation a lot, like as humans that are into music, like how often do you say as a music consumer, I like their first record. How often do you say that? We say it a lot. Like everyone says it a lot. And I think that that comes from a place of like, there was no apprehension. There was no, um, there was no expectation. You just did what you did. You know what I mean? Like, and it didn't matter. So I think, I think that those are the short answer reasons on why our first thing was just a, a menagerie of insanity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just at adolescence and, um, but sometimes that works great. And I think that it made it to where we still do that. You know, if you listen to under Oath now, there's everyone's influence is in there. You know what I mean? And it's more, there's more cohesion only because we learn how to play. Right. You know what I mean? Totally. No, that's and it's, and it's it's weird. Like, I think a lot of our peers, a lot of our friends, you know, guys like you and I, like we learned to be proficient in our instruments while doing bands. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like not like we. I think most rock bands, if you go back to Kiss or U2 or any of these bands, everyone learned how to play together. It wasn't like you went to a conservatory and you came home and were like, okay, listen, now I can start a band and it's going to be fucking great. So, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, we didn't do that. No. You know, we all learned together. So, which is, you know, another reason why there's the way things were the way they were, I think. Yeah. No, I, I think you hit on an interesting point too, where it's like, you know, devoid of context, like you said, you know, pre, like the infancy or pre-internet, you are existing around like your own scene, your own knowledge, rather than having like the funnel of everything coming at you all at once. And so I think because of that, you're just like, oh yeah, like, you know, what we think what we're doing is, you know, original or whatever. And then, you know, once you, once you kind of open up your, your lens and you're like, oh, okay. So other bands were kind of on the same tip as what we were doing. We just didn't know, you know? it's, it's, It's so weird. Like, I don't understand it. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how you get there, but you do somehow, you know, you get to that place and it's interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of backing you up a little bit, you know, uh, obviously the, you know, top of the line bio stuff, you know, Cape, Cape of Florida, Christian family, like that stuff's been covered a million times over. So I'm not, Mm, I'm not going to do that. But, um, the thing that I, uh, you know, just observing you from a distance and kind of seeing who you are as a person, um, you know, what, what kind of like kid were you, you know, were you a sort of, you know, introverted artistic kid? Were you, you know, a little more outgoing, you know, class clown sort of stuff? Like what kind of kid did you find yourself being through elementary school and junior high and high school? I know those are all different ages, Um, but yeah. You know, I, uh, as a kid, I did grow up in that sort of, uh, um, hyper, uh, hyper conservative home, you know? Um, but my parents were like really into my dreams, like me being a musician. And I, my mom has this photo. I actually saw it recently and it's me at three in my third birthday party. And she's kind of dangling me over a cake and this, you know, yellowed out eighties photo. And, um, she's holding me over a cake and on the cake is painted a drum set. So as a kid, like I, was so drawn to the drums, like aesthetically, it was really weird. Like, like the way that they looked, you know? Um, and then I began to learn how to play them and I was playing drums my whole life. Like, I don't know why I gravitated towards them. I don't know why. Uh, but music is, it just was always a thing. And my dad, my, you know, I grew up again in a super conservative home. My dad, every Friday night would drink Coors Heavy. Um, only on Fridays he would have beer. And he would drink Coors Heavy and he had this massive uh, record collection. And he would listen to like, you know, Blood Zeppelin and the Beatles, the Beach Boys. And uh, I remember being enthralled with that as a kid. You know, I remember hearing Beach Boys in some headphones that I plugged into his turntable and feeling like I was like in a box of the song. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, so I, I, uh, I was just super musical as a kid. You know, and, and we didn't have any money. So like we didn't go on vacations or, uh, have like extra stuff, you know, it was like very, 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 uh, we didn't go hungry, but it was very, very, very middle class, like at the bottom of middle class. Sure. So just like, the necessities. Just, yeah, you get what you get and don't put your fit. And when I was, uh, seven years old, um, the age of my son now, my dad, trade a job to a doctor for my first drum kit um and you know didn't take any money from the job and 
did the job and the guy asked him the way he tells the story in adult my adult time is he said the guy asked him you know what he wants to what would you like to be what's your price you know my dad put in sprinkler systems and um made fountains and stuff like that for rich people and he he uh there was a drum kit in this guy's house my dad had been in one time to like take a look or something and he goes i want that drum set and the guy was like are you sure and he was like yeah so he traded this big job like a week-long job for this drum kit um, that I wish I still had and that's another story but um, so yeah I was just that kind of kid just super musical super isolated um, and so for me I had to really grow up out here which is like it's a two way street right like growing up in those really conservative homes like we all did in under us all of us except for Spencer really but he kind of did it in a respect so once we all got on the road it was like this anthrax shot to the brain of like, oh my God, like there's so much fucking life out there. In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi. I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, you heard Frankie up top of the show, but Rockabilia is the best place to go for band merch. So visit rockabilia.com, use the code PC100Words. That gets you 15% off your order. But they offer so many things for the holiday season. You need to go there and get all the gifts for your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, maybe even your mom and dad, because you know they like music and they for sure have shirts that would appeal to their tastes at rockabilia.com. I love the company, fast shipping, great customer service. They are just on top of it in every way imaginable. And plus, their stuff is officially licensed. No horrible bootleg stuff. You're getting high quality that will last you for years. You know, it's not one of those things you wash at once and then cool. Looks like I don't have, it looks like I got a blank t-shirt now. (laughs) That is not what Rockabilia does. So please use the code PC100Words, check out rockabilia.com, buy those presents, buy them now, okay? Because if you wait too long, you have to pay additional for shipping and you just don't need that, okay? Do it now, knock it out, boom. Yeah, I had this really simple childhood, but we started touring so young that I, I, half of my life, my adolescent life is spent out here. You know what I mean? So like, when people ask me about my childhood, it's like a twofold thing. Sure. So I, I don't really know what, what way to do it. You know what I mean? No, no, totally. But I, I really, you said something in there that I found really interesting where the aesthetics of the drums appealed to you because, you know, I, 
I totally understand what you're saying, but I haven't heard someone express it like that where, you know, people get drawn to their particular instrument in some capacity based off just the way that it looks, you know, it's like, okay, a guitar looks cool. Like all this massive drum set looks cool. And I just like that idea because like as a kid, you're operating off of just like pure instincts, you know, you don't know anything. And then you see this big drum set and I like how you were like, yeah, man, that that's cool looking. I like that. Yeah, I mean, that's how it started for me. And mine was even weirder than that. Like, I was born in 1983, so all the drums I was seeing as a kid were, like, grotesque, <laughs> giant drum kits with fire behind them. Totally. But I was drawn towards, like, the drum kit on the back of my dad's Beatles records. And, like, all these jazz drums, like Roy Haynes and all these Beatles drum kits. I thought they looked cooler, which I don't know, you know, the first drum kit I ever played was this, little country church my parents went to and it was Rogers Holiday, 68 Rogers Holiday, which I still have today, which is super cool. But I, you know, I don't, it's, it's weird. Do you know Tucker Rules on Thursday? Have you guys, have you guys spoken? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Great dude. Yeah. He, he said to me when we were younger, like we toured a lot together back in the day. He goes, we were talking about drum heads or some, something like our drum techs were talking about gear. He needs like, I like to have Remo heads and I like to have them face the correct way up because there's a crown the logo for a Remo drum head it's a brand of drum head is like a crown and he goes I like to have them face the right way because he goes let's be honest drums are so much about aesthetic and he's one of the only other people that I've ever heard talk about that yeah you so, know and we're we're around this he's, a, he's like two years older than me uh, or maybe three years older than yeah. me I remember him saying that and me being like damn that's true you know yeah, what I mean so totally. as a kid you know that, that with that photograph it's proof like that's what that's what I was into. Yeah. Like I just like the way they looked before I knew how to play them. I wanted to look at them. So I, I yeah. really, you know, I, I, I love that too. Cause like I, even though I didn't play drums in the band that I played in, I always love, like, I just always like watching the drummer above all else. And to your point of like, cause you know, each drummer has obviously different styles. Like some dudes put their symbols, like, you know, where they have to like literally get out of their seat to hit them. And then like, get, like you said, there's so many different aesthetic twists that people could put onto it that obviously ultimately makes it their own so yeah i completely empathize and understand what you're saying there that's really cool yeah so that's what that's what started it for me was that whole thing um and it's somewhat you know i'm 37 six, and i you know i still think about that sometimes you know like the guy that works for me he's worked for me for years and years and years like through my whole career ever since i had a person to do all that stuff and he he talks about how um, he keeps things a certain way because he knows that I'll I'll be more comfortable. Like in terms of like aesthetically, it's really interesting. Like to pick his brain about the whole thing. And I'm also uh, I'm born blind to my left eye. Um, so another big thing for me is like it has to look the same. Otherwise, from my one eye, otherwise I get confused. Right. So it's yeah. all weird. <laughs> it's Drums, are weird. Drums are weird. Drums are weird. Um, Drums are weird. And so then, you know, as you started to, you know, experiment with drums and obviously play them and when was your, you know, I guess first introduction to kind of more, you know, independent music, like obviously the, the stuff that, you know, was not on your parents' turntables and radio stations. And yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, that's really weird, man. My whole life, uh, outside of my parents' music and music I liked as a little kid, we've been under a, uh, you know, um, I was playing drums in church and, uh, the guitar player's dad saw me playing and told his son about me and they called me to join the band. This was like 2000 or whatever, 99. 
so I was a teenager, a uh, young teenager, and um, yeah, it's almost been 20 years. God, that's crazy to really think about. Um, anyway, <laughs> totally. Uh, we have anyway, but yeah. So so, and then when I when I when they called me, they asked me all these questions. You know, it was like getting getting vetted by your. You know, how your friends used to like vet you out. Like you like this, totally you like <laughs> this. You know, like when you were skateboarding. Like what kind of skateboarding? You, you like yeah. burnout shit and like alien workshops. You know, so like uh, they were like, "Have you heard of this band? Have you heard of this band?" And I was like, "No, I didn't know anything about bands." You know what I mean? I didn't know like. So I got like this garage backdoor education through my being taught how to be in a band by the guys in my band. So it was yeah. just, just a no, weird that's really, thing. So every everything to me has been like that was your gateway. Yeah. Grown from grown from here. Even like you know we talk about like growing as, as instrumentalists and musicians together, and you know repurposing our lives into that together. But even further than that, for me, it's been like everything started here for me. Like not just playing, but also like like learning about the culture of punk rock and the culture of hardcore and all of the above. So yeah, yeah you were, it, it was like you were literally learning on the job. <laughs> literally. Yeah, literally. And I mean, uh, you know, for, it was years before we, we didn't start, we didn't become, a, I guess I don't talk about being, it being 20 years, but to me, 2020, so it would be 20 years. Cause we started to work full time in 2000, like at the end of 2003, you know, even though we had those EPs out, like we started touring at the end of 2003. So yeah. Yeah, no, totally. But I guess it's been, it's, you know, we, somebody got, the last time someone on earth got married, I'm trying to remember who it was. Someone said at their wedding, they were like, I've been in this band longer than I've been out of it. Yeah. You know, and when you think about it, <laughs> yeah. when you think about it that way, you're like, yeah, I really have, you know, done more growing up here than I've done anywhere else, which is like really daunting as an adult to say. Uh-huh. Like I've done more growing up inside of a band than I did out of. So when people like yourself ask me like, about my childhood. Yeah. You're like, so much of it is wrapped up. Totally. It's in the band. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You, I, you saw me as a child. So that was what my childhood was like. I was was playing drums behind. Yeah. Under oath or whatever. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Literally. Yeah. So it's like, you know, know, we've all gone on and done so much different stuff and took a break and, you know, we're back in it again. And it went from VFW halls to arenas and, all kinds of weird shit like that. But it's funny, man. Cause you don't, you don't realize until you get on a phone with someone like yourself and you're like, they, you got, you ask those, those gestating questions of like, where'd you come from? Yeah. It's like, Who the oh. hell are you? <laughs> and then you're like, Oh, Oh geez. I guess I just came, I guess I just came from here. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally. Totally. I get that. <clears throat> um, and so, you know, obviously since you're playing in a touring band at an early age and everything like that, was there ever any notion of, uh, I guess another path for you in regards to like, Oh, like I know I'm going to go to college and I know that I would like to get an English degree or whatever. Or was that even mm. like, on your radar at all? No, sure. Never. Nope. <laughs> did, Never, you like, I think... did you like school nope. or no, no. I mean, here's the thing. Here's the thing with me. Like I grew up in a little coastal town in Florida. So I like to surf. I like to skateboard. Uh, I really like books even till now. Like I read, uh, I'm like one of those autodidactic people that reads like three or four books a week. Um, even as a kid, like I loved books. I loved collecting books. I just love stories and hearing people's stories and reading stories and writing stories. So for me, like, 
I thought about like writing a little, you know, but then sure. it was always songs. It was always just, I want to write songs. So for me, it was just, it's just always been about music. I never had like the pipe dream of like, maybe I'll become a professional surfer or skateboarder right. or yeah, yeah. a baseball player. What, I just yeah. didn't, it didn't never happened. Like I did those things. I played baseball and surfed and skated all the time. And, but I just wanted to be in a band. I wanted to write songs. Cause as I saw, you know, when I saw bands, um, there was this place in town in St. Petersburg, Florida called the refuge. It was actually a homeless outreach but it doubled as a venue and everybody played there. Like everybody, like, you know, MXPX played there and, uh, Chrome donuts and, uh, sick of it all played there. Like everybody went, came through there. You know what I mean? Like I can't even, imagine, I can't even remember all, but it was this homeless shelter. It was tiny, probably held 150 people. And I saw so many shows there and we played so many shows there. It's gone now, but, um, I would see shows and I would, I would see bands play and it felt, to, it felt to me like it was life changing. You know what I mean? Like I, I, you know, uh, you ever seen that Jack Black movie, that school of rock when he's like, yeah, of course. One great show can change the world. You know, like I felt that way. Yep. Like not, not on like the grand scale he was talking about with smoking lasers and whatever else, but on just in a sense that like I would see bands play and I would feel different when I left. You know what I mean? Like yep. I would feel like, these people are united in something and everyone watching them is united in something. So for me, I think that was it. I just was like, this is what I, this is who I am. Not even, not even like it's as cheesy as it sounds like not even this is what I want to do, but this is who I am. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I don't have, I don't serve any other purpose. And I believe that uh, outside of being a husband and a father, I believe that today, like I don't serve any other purpose sure. other than to facilitate that feeling for people. I literally believe that's what I was put on earth to do. Yeah. So, no, no, I, yeah. t- I, I completely understand that because I think what's so cool about, you know, once you start to get exposed to that independent subculture is not only you feel like you've unlocked this secret society, but then you do feel where it's like, dude, no one else that I know is experiencing this. Like, you know, whether it's, you know, the band is super political and gets you fired up and interested in, you know, socialism or if someone is like, Oh, straight edge or veganism or, you know, Christianity. And like you get set on fire and you're like, dude, this is the only thing I care about. So I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, it just, for me, it's like music is music. is like, I think the only vehicles that can do things that fast, you know, that can make you take up a cause that fast or can make you even consider a cause that fast or can make you bum that fast or stoked that fast. You know what I mean? It's the only, it's like the purest adrenaline shot of emotion to a person. I think, you know what I mean? And obviously like, we can wax poetic for three hours about the different the genres of music and how each make you feel and how music uh, isn't as pure as it used to be. And we can do that for as long as you want. But I think that yeah. the reality is that music is, is the most straight shot of emotion that you can receive. And music is like food. It's like everybody needs it. You know what I mean? Like, have you ever watched a movie that had no soundtrack? Probably not very often. You know what I mean? And if you've had, I have seen movies like, you know, art movies that don't have a soundtrack and it's fucking painful to watch. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. So it's an, ex- yeah. well, yeah, it's like a thought experiment. You know, people are like, let's see how long this can last without people like feeling uh, uncomfortable or whatever. So yeah, I understand. Not long, dude. Yeah. Not long. <laughs> um, 
and uh, apologies in advance, but I'm going to play a little armchair psychologist with you, uh, where you, you've always struck me as a person. And honestly, I don't mean this in a negative way where you are very, um, impulsive and you follow your heart, maybe in opposition to kind of your head, you know, you're like, yeah, I'm going to lead with my emotion rather than the, you know, whatever, a thought process that I've gone through 17 different steps and stuff like that. Do you feel that's like a fair characterization or is that something that like you notice, but you know, you've changed from what you used to be with that? Um, and if I'm wrong, you can just shoot me down. You're you're right. You're (laughs) totally right. You're totally right. Okay. Which is funny that you, uh, you just just read my lunch, but I, I, you know, for me, I just, I can't. And it's, and it's, it's a good thing for my career and a terrible thing as a person. Um, that's the hardest part. I think it's like, like if you're going to make art, like you probably should lead with your heart. You know what I mean? As cheesy as that sounds like if you're going to make good art, you can't lead with your brain because inside your brain, there's reasons. And I don't think that art can have a reason. It just has to be right. You know what I mean? Like you just have to wake up one day and you're like, I have to get this out of me. This is like, creative food poisoning it must come out or it'll explode you know what i mean sure um and if you think about it like now i feel like music now more than ever has been thought over like you do a thousand meetings once you get successful it's like so what's your direction like i don't know and i think that's like that's such a cancer statement for people you know that's the emperor of all music maladies in my opinion it's like what's your direction like which direction are you guys headed you know what i mean like you think that the stones had a fucking direction. Right. You know what I mean? Do you think that the sex pistols had a direction? You know what I mean? Like it just, I, no, they didn't. It just was something that was like an explosion of creativity that happened. So to a fault, like in life, that impulsiveness is hard, but in art, um, it's exactly who I have to be. And from my previous statement, like I said, I really believe that it was put here to make this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, so for me, it, it serves me well, but it often gets me in trouble, you know, or I end up with my foot in my mouth or, you know, <laughs> sure. what, whatever, a pile of diarrhea in my hands, like whatever, you know, like whatever analogy you want to use. Yeah, no, I understand. I understand. Um, the, I'm sure this was an interesting moment for you. And I always find it, I mean, cause I, I myself am Christian and definitely was like raised within, not raised within the church, but raised within that idea of like, Oh, here's Christian hardcore versus, you know, secular hardcore or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, I, I didn't yeah, have yeah. any, I didn't have any problems listening to both. Like I could listen to dead guy and I could listen to, you know, focal point. It was fine. But when, um, you know, considering your upbringing, as you started to kind of realize that there was obviously music that, you know, existed in the the secular world and it was like, Oh wow. Like these bands are kind of similar to what we're doing, except, you know, they're just not talking about God or whatever. Um, was that kind of like a a mind bending experience for you? Or was it just one of those things where it was like, Oh cool. I can like more bands, but I maybe have to keep them on the DL. Uh, I, I don't, I think I might've felt that way when I was really young, when I first found like hardcore, you know, and punk rock, like I might've felt like, Ooh, I shouldn't be listening to this stuff or whatever, but I, I don't, I got over that pretty fast. And I think there's like, you know, I have pretty deep spiritual beliefs. I'm not really an organized religion person, but I have, I was for a long time and I, I have pretty deep spiritual beliefs. And I think that like connected in every person is that thing where like, you know, if you're a Christian, if you believe that God made people, 
or you believe in creationism or, or whatever, like it's pretty hard to like debunk the fact that a good piece of art belongs to like evil powers. You know what I mean? Cause that's <laughs> right. what you're taught as a kid growing up in the South. You're taught like, this is the devil's music. You know what I mean? But when you hear, you know, something amazing, it, it just, it, it just, I don't, it, it didn't compute to me. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't put my parents doctrine together with what I was feeling. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So for me, it was like, it was like, yeah, I've been told this is wrong, but this is so blatantly right. Right. <laughs> you know, like totally. I, the way that I, the way that I feel and like, um, the emotions that I have towards this piece of music, just, I, I don't believe that, you know, and as I got older, I, I, you know, in the opinion that I have now and I've had for years is you can't put a genre on music based on its background. Like it's, it's creed. You know, you can't say that like one thing is like Christian rock or another thing is political because it's all just music. The subject shouldn't be what makes it like palatable to one people group or the next. You know what I mean? Like the subject should be like, that can be like the salt on top of the potatoes, but music is music. You know what I mean? Yep. No, no, totally. I, I completely agree. Um, and you know, kind of what you were talking about when I was playing armchair psychologist, uh, the, you know, the business of music, like clearly, you know, as under oath and frankly, as all your different musical projects have, have evolved over time. And like you said, you know, the, the boardroom meetings and sitting in around tables talking about, um, you know, the, the, the focus of the band and where the future of the band is going, um, have you like, do you like the, I guess the business of music or is that something that you do your best to like, I guess, insulate yourself from? I'm pretty insulated from it. Okay. I, I think that there's aspects that I like of music business and those aspects aren't the ones that, that help me like the aspects. Well, they, I guess they help me with aspects that I'm interested in are like, like, Oh, like last month, more people in Nashville listened to your music as opposed to LA. And it used to be the other way around. Wonder why. You know what I mean? Like, that's the stuff that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in, like, how do we get more streams? And, you know, nowadays it's like, you got out to do a playlist that has 350,000 followers today. Um, and you're just like, what's well, a playlist? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm still the guy that right. I have a thousand vinyl in my, li- in my living room. So, um, yeah, aspects of it I like and aspects of it I just don't, they don't serve me mentally. I don't, I get really stressed out about like, is this working the way that you want it to? Oh, great label or oh, great promotion person. And if not, you see me as a lesser than, you know, like I let that stuff bother me. Like, so I've consciously made an effort to just step away from that part of the business. That's good. It would, it That's would good. just eat me up. Yeah. Know? No, for sure. And I, I think that's, I mean, it's good that you recognize that because I think some people feel like, uh, you know, there's clearly a sense of responsibility when you are, you know, making decisions for bands and stuff like that. But then sometimes, and I, I know you've seen it many times with your, you know, friends and peers and other bands you've toured with, when a person that isn't necessarily, uh, not even good, but like equipped to handle the business of the band steps in that role. And you're just like, Oh man, this isn't going to end well, like, because you're just not going to be happy. And like you said, all of those things that you recognize in yourself are in other people that are trying to do that, you know, it's rough. Yeah. I, there's a lot of people in the music industry that make a lot of calls that don't live 
this stuff like we do. You know what I mean? And that's like, is it okay? I don't know that it's okay, but it's what, it's the hand you get dealt. So you try to explain yourself like what I've always done with, you know, suits, if you will, or industry people that don't make the music and don't really understand the culture is I try to find common ground with those people. You know what I mean? Like I'm really into a few other things besides music. Like, uh, uh, I really like NASCAR and I really like, uh, I really like, uh, watches and horology. So like for me, like, I'll just see if that we got anything else in common. You know what I mean? And maybe that'll help us unite the thing that we both actually have in common, which is, is taking a piece of art to the public. So yeah. that's, that's how I, that's kind of how I drive that tractor, if you will. Sure. Yeah. Well, it, it, no, it's true because you, especially too, coming from the subculture that we've come from, um, you know, they're especially whatever, you know, mid to late nineties, early two thousands, like early two thousands is the first time when bands really had some sort of idea that like, Oh, Hey, I can quote unquote, make a living out of this. And, you know, making a living is like literally paying your rent off of the band or whatever. Um, but, but you, because of that introduction, there are more people who are coming into the business of music that don't have the same sort of experience of the, you know, the DIY nature of it. So like you said, you do have to find the common bond with people being like, Oh wow. So you've worked in the music industry for 25 years and now you just see that this can be commodified, which is fine. I understand capitalism and business, but like, let's just talk about NASCAR. Mm. <laughs> like you said. Yeah, it's easier, man. I, I, you know, when we were, we were actually working on Erase Me, the most recent Under Earth record, um, and had like a lot of good demos before we had a deal. Uh, and we were just taking meetings with a bunch of different labels. You know, we knew we didn't want to be on Tooth and Nail anymore, so we were just taking lots and lots of different meetings. And, and I'll leave the guy and the label name, let's get that the evil thing. But I remember sitting at, sitting at a dinner, me and Spencer, the whole band wasn't even there. I can't remember why, but me and Spencer sitting there with a bunch of dudes and this guy started a smaller, like essentially a hardcore level way back in the day, like in an apartment, you know? And he ended up selling it for like, I mean, just like really ugly amounts of money, you know, millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars. And, um, he was talking about like all the stuff he had, like literally it was weird. Like it was, I almost felt like, do you have a lift? Like I almost like I was almost like I elbowed. I remember elbowing Spencer. Like we were drinking wine, so we were a little loose. And I, I literally remember elbowing Spencer and going, "Did he have a lift?" Like it's so weird. He was talking about like what cars he had, and like he had like all this really rare stuff, like guitar, really rare guitars, like half million dollar guitars and stuff. Like it was weird, man. And uh, I remember just thinking in my head, I'm like, I'm just gonna find like something else to talk about with this dude. Like, I don't think I want to talk to him about my band anymore. You know what I mean? Like, just because I don't know if he wants me to become in the place he's in by selling the music that my band makes, but whatever, wherever he's at is not what I want. You know, and yep. we ended up not, not going to that place. But yeah, that stuff is weird, man. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally get that. Um, the, I always find this question, uh, you know, interesting because, you know, the, this response can go uh, many different directions, but you know, there's that moment where, you know, you're playing in bands and you're touring and, you know, you start to notice, you know, pe- wow, there's people singing along to our songs that aren't our friends. And like, you know, you have all these little mile markers, uh, in the band's life, mm-hmm. you know, from either playing huge shows or whatever. Um, 
you know, for you, and I'm sure it will be difficult to pinpoint a exact moment, but you know, maybe you can talk about the feeling or maybe you can pinpoint the moment, but like, when did a bit, when did, you know, you playing an under oath, when did that feel kind of like quote unquote real where it was like, Oh my gosh, like I, you know, I, I, I couldn't, I can't believe we sold out this venue of 200 people or like, I can't believe the first time that, you know, whatever we put out a full length that sold a thousand copies or something like that. You know, um, do you have anything that kind of, you know, shakes loose when I say that? Um, you know, I, I always think that I feel like when you're in a band, it's like you're on this cycle that's like you like as a kid, all I could think about was I want to be in a band and that would be enough for me. If I could just be in a band, then I got in a band and I'm like, Oh, like if I, we could just play one show, like I would, that would be enough for me, you know? And then you're like, ah, we just had like one person that like knew a song and you're like, if we just had one record, like if we just had like one tour, if we could just play to 50 people instead of five people, if we could just play to 500 people instead of 50 people, if we could just make a gold record, you know what I mean? Like all this stuff and in each mile marker we hit. Um, and I wasn't really like, we, we kept each other so humble by like, I don't know how we did it, but like realizing that we're just people and we would call each other on it from a very young, very young age. Like we were like, you are being an asshole. Like you're not famous. Shut the fuck up. Like, you know what I mean? Like we, we were good about treating each other like shit in a sense that no one ever got too prickly for their pants. You know what I mean? But, um, the moment for me that it really hit was we were on warp tour in Oh four. And that summer, um, they're only chasing safety, which is like our first real record, you know, that came out, uh, June 15th of that year. Um, and so what tour for some reason, I know in its later iterations, it started later in the summer, but it started like the end of May, I want to say, or like very early June. And we went on tour and, uh, we had this, it was the first time ever on a tour bus and we couldn't afford a real tour bus. So we got someone in our management team found like this budget tour bus and it was older than all of us. It was a 1981 Eagle and we missed half the it broke down so much. Um, we missed a good three weeks of the tour because we were just broken down all the time. But the days that we did play, we would ride with different people and we would spread out all over the parking lot, you know, where we were and who gave, who would give us a ride. And it's funny to talk about that now. That's like a disaster. But back then it was like normal. Yeah. It's an adventure, right? Just like how we get the next place. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. It was fine. But we started out that tour playing on the, on the smart punk stage, the side stage that, some dudes in a band had volunteered to build if they got to play. And, uh, so we started out playing for a couple, 300 people a day. And we thought that was like, we were in it, dude. Like we were playing Wembley, you know what I mean? Like it was this stuff. So that album came out on that tour, the 15th, like a couple weeks into that tour. And because we were so confused with trying to get from A to B, we weren't paying attention to record sales or we didn't know what was going on. And I remember Boston was the last day of that tour um, that day. And the big thing with Warp Tour was like, who were you playing up against? You know, in 04, it was like Taken Back Sunday and The Used, and these bands were massive um, at this point. You know, like Warp Tour was 20,000 people a day and everyone was watching these Used, you know? So I remember getting the schedule that morning and we weren't allowed to be on this blow-up schedule screen that people could see, you know, when they were playing. Like, we didn't get that that perk, if you will, I guess. So we would make flyers every day and walk around and pass them out. 
like flyers at Warp Tour to the people, you know. And um, I remember getting the, the, the schedule that morning and the last day of tour. And gradually over the summer, the crowds have been getting better and better and better. And at this point, like I thought we were like the stones. Like that's what I felt like in my, in my head. Cause we were playing for like a thousand, 2000 people a day. And we, I had never seen that before, you know, and it grew slowly. Like every week or two, more people would come over as the, as that record got uh, some traction. And, and so the last day of Boston playing during the years, like, I'm like, we're screwed. Right. Like no one, four people are going to be here. Like, yeah. And that was, you know, the used big record was out. The four o'clock and the fucking morning song was the biggest thing in the world. Like it's huge. It was all over MTV. It was all over the radio. Like, it was that was like when punk rock, hardcore, alternative music really took the span into mainstream. You know, it was like with them and Taking Back Sunday and My Chemical Romance and those bands. Um, My Kim was on that summer too, and so we passed flyers out and just chalked it up to a loss. Like, no one's gonna come watch us. It's our last day on our first year walk tour. No one cared. It's fine. <laughs> we didn't even think anything of it. It was like whatever. Like, I'll see you guys next week or whatever. Um, and we played that night during the used and there were thousands of people at the, uh, at our show, like three or 4,000 people. I remember this. And then, uh, that, that day, Coheed and Cambria asked us to be direct support on their fall tour. And the rest has been this yeah. history after it was history after that. No, that's, um, but it was, it was really over cool. the, it was over the summer. So it felt like overnight. It was over the summer that it went from zero to 60 and we were too, I think that's how we stayed humble. You know, I mean, and granted we've had our spikes of haughtiness, but I think that's how we stayed humble is our first rise as a band. We were, we didn't have anywhere to ride. <laughs> we didn't have a, a ride. Totally. You know what I mean? Like our first in our, our, our record, by the time October came around to do that, Cody and Cambria tour, we had sold a hundred thousand records since that record. Right. So it just was like an overnight kind of thing, but it kept us on the ground because we didn't have anywhere to sleep or live or get from show to show. So yeah. I think that that's what kind of, no, I'm I mean, glad it happened now. Totally. And, and that's the warp tour that I talk about. We did warp tours after that where we were like one of the headliners and there was 20,000 people a day and it was insane. You know what I mean? But the one that I talk about is that one. Cause it was so, so fun. You know, I rode, I rode in a van with from first to last and, and Sonny and I shared a hotel room who became Skrillex. You know what I mean? And we still talk about that now, how he's worth 250 million. He's worth $250 million and owns a jet. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like <laughs> we talk about that. And uh, two of the other guys rode with the casualties because they had one of the shitty buses we had, but it ran to the company, left him on. And then our keyboard player and, and somebody else rode with, uh, with story of the year. And then our merch guy, um, he literally, like stored our merch and CDs and stuff under someone else's bus and rode with someone else and sold our stuff out, of, you know, from their bus. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so crazy. Yeah, dude, just it put crazy. piecing it all together makes total sense. <laughs> but but that was that was the summer where it kind of all clicked. So yep. yeah, um, you you know when uh, obviously when Underoath took their you know I mean at the time breakup but you know now hiatus break whatever we want to call it. Um, and you obviously had to, you know, anytime anything ends, uh, especially from a creative pursuit, uh, and people know you to be where it's like, Oh yeah, Aaron from under oath, you know, like that, that is what mm. your identity is, you know, to the wider world. Um, you know, when you kind of transitioned out of that and obviously, you know, the almost came, you know, very, very quickly after that. Um, 
you know, did you, did you kind of go through an identity crisis in a way of like, you know, who am I in relation to, you know, like what this all means? Like, you know, cause a lot of people have difficulty kind of transitioning out of that. Um, even though you're able to still creatively pursue your things like you were doing, um, did, was that difficult? Yeah. For you? Uh, dude, it was awful. Cause I quit under us before they broke up. So I quit under oath in 2010. Right. Like a few of us had just started to butt heads really bad and I was miserable. So I quit under oath and was doing like the almost and solo stuff or whatever. Uh, and then like a year and a half after I quit, they announced the breakup. And I was like, wait, what? You know what I mean? Even though I hadn't played on that final record they did, I was like, wait, you can't break up. And then they ended up doing this really weird tour that wasn't a full U.S. tour. It was like strange, like, East Coast Texas Texas run is the final shows, and I was like, "What are you guys talking about?" And then I remember calling someone from the band or management or someone, being like, "Let me let me come play these shows," you know? And they were like, "No, sorry." And I was like, "What the fuck? What do you mean, no sorry?" Like, yes, I'm gonna come play these shows. It's my band, and they were like, "Nope, sorry," you know. And and to their credit, like they had made a record with another guy, and you know he was. They wanted to do do right by him, you know what I mean, which is which was the right decision. But uh, yeah, man, I was lost, and especially with them closing the chapter without me being able to shut the page with them, I was so lost, you know. And I spent the next three or four years just playing drums with someone else's band because I just couldn't wrap my brain around making anything. Sure. Yeah. No. That, that makes you know? yeah. That makes total yeah. sense. Yeah. Especially like you were talking about the sort of like closure aspect of it and you know sometimes like it, it makes it easier when you've got a real sort of book into something but yeah i totally understand what you're saying um yeah i needed i, I needed that and didn't get it so yeah doesn't matter now but it did then totally totally and i guess kind of you know because you've spoken so openly about you know your anxiety and managing your anxiety and you know going i'm sure going to therapy and maybe you know taking medication at some point um was that kind of a, was that kind of a triggering event or had you started to really kind of struggle with that towards, you know, whatever in the middle of under oath, like how did that kind of manifest itself? I started struggling with that way earlier than that. It was part of my reason for leaving. I couldn't just, uh, couldn't manage myself, which I kind of in in turn, as, as people do, they have a mental illness. Like you, you turn that, you know, you, you want to stop turning it inward. So you start turning it outward towards other people. And then that makes you have disagreements. And that's what happened with me is I needed, I, I medicated now I've been medicated for years, but I wasn't medicated at the time. I needed like an SSRI or like an antidepressant, you know, and I wouldn't take it cause I was like, I can beat this or whatever. And, um, it just beat down on everybody around me. Um, so that was a big player for me. Um, not is to after under oath why I experienced distress or trauma, but the reason why, big reason why I left, you know? So then it was just exacerbated times a thousand after I quit because then I was like, oh, wait, what did I just do, you know? So it took me until probably 2012 or 13 before I was like, I need help. Sure. You know? I can't. Yeah, you're taking that first function. step. Sure, absolutely. Taking the yeah, first step. Which is, which is, it's hard, man. It's, it's hard to, to go into a doctor and say, I think that like, talking and talk therapy and, and exercise and all the things that you should do for anxiety, I don't think they're all working for me. I think I need some more help. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, a, that's, a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow. But once you finally do it, you're like, 
Oh wait, there I am. What the hell? I've been yeah. like li- I've been living under uh, like a cellophane blanket for the decade. That's yep. what happened to me. It was weird, man. It was really weird. No, that's. I mean, my my family uh, has battled depression, and you know, my wife and my mother, and like the best way to that you know, I've heard my mother describe it and then other people have experienced it where it's just like, yeah, everything's kind of, you know, muted and in gray. And then all of a sudden when you start to, you know, work on yourself and peel away those layers and start to medicate yourself, um, you know, things like all of a sudden look like they're in color and it's like, Oh yeah, I understand that. Yeah. That's, that's verbatim what it's like. It really is like that. It's like seeing through a dirty windshield. And then you just go to some service station and some guy just scrapes all the dead bugs off and you're like, Oh, <laughs> Oh, Oh, that's what the world looks like. Yeah. Yeah, weird. Yeah. You know, Funny. I've been wearing sunglasses inside since I was 15. Sure. <laughs> weird. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for the help, but totally. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and all it is is swallowing a pill every day that doesn't change you. You yeah. know, like, I mean, essentially people, people with generalized anxiety disorder, which is what I deal with. And mine's pretty severe. Like, I would get chest pains and like the full thing, you know, like the full gamut of like going to the hospital twice in one day. Sometimes like I'm having a heart attack and I'm like, no, you're not. And I'm like, yes, I am. Um, I mean, what it essentially is, is your serotonin gland in your brain just pushes too much juice out. You know what I mean? So essentially like what I ended up on was a medication that's just like a rubber band around that gland, you know? So it's, it's a gradual thing. It's not like taking a Xanax where you just become a, uh, drooling, tired person. It's like in six weeks, you realize that you've taken those glasses off and you're like, what the hell? Yeah. But it takes like six to eight weeks. So it's a really simple step. And I encourage anybody that, you know, is dealing with anxiety, depression, like there is definitely a way out. You just gotta, you gotta pull your head out of your ass and talk to somebody. Right. Totally. Um, last two things yeah. I want to hit on before I let you go. Mm, the, totally. um, you know, even though, you know, many people, um, you know, have looked up to you in regards to, you know, your, your drum playing and, you know, cite you as an influence. And, um, to me, it always seems like you've been the person that, uh, you know, like obviously you're fine doing interviews and you're fine in putting yourself out there to the kind of general public. Um, there seems like a part of it that also is like, well, I'm glad I play the drums because like, you know, I, I'm kind of in the back. Like, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to be the center of attention. I can put myself out there, but I don't feel comfortable being the center of attention. Um, is that, uh, has that kind of always been you or is that something that you're like, okay, I, I, I've learned that like I need to put myself out there in some capacity. Um, or has that just been like a constant battle? <laughs> I don't, I don't know the battle's the right word. I think it just happened over time. You know, there was, there was a time when between the first under us singer, when we were like a local band until Spencer, where we didn't have a singer at all. And we were writing songs that went on chasing safety. And I was just writing all the vocal parts, you know? And I just was, it just felt natural to me. So I don't know that I ever like, but I still have this thing where like, like I prefer to have something on stage. Like I've never been the kind of guy that wants to go up there and just sing with a microphone and strut his stuff. Like I have to do something. Like, <laughs> right. I, have to, like I have, I can't, I won't, I won't do it. Like I, I've done it a few times for like features that I've been on, you know, they come to town and they're like, will you sing the song we wrote together or whatever? I'm like, Ugh, fine. But I don't, I don't, it's not natural for me. I don't like, I don't like to be a front man. Like it's not something that I like. Like I don't, it doesn't, I don't feel like it's where I'm best used, you know? And I think I'm fine at it, you know, with the almost or if I'm doing a solo thing, like 
But it, it, as far as being a front man goes or being up front or being the center of attention, I feel like I do better in like a, like a pretty intimate setting when I can like tell a story behind a song or something like that. But like commanding a crowd, I don't know that that's something that I've been, a gift I've been given. Yeah. You know? No, totally. No, that's a very good way of putting it. It's like there, there are people who can obviously function in that where it's like, yes, I can stand in the middle of the stage and play my guitar and sing my songs and, you know, talk a little between songs. But then there's obviously the people who are like, Hey, where's that spotlight? Like hit me with it. And it's like, which is fine. That's just different people. But yeah, I understand what you're saying. Totally. Totally. I, you know, I, I find it so impressive that the singer Spencer Flora dance, you can literally like, like we can be playing in front of a crowd that doesn't know who we are. And by the end of the show, he has been like eating out of his hands. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, totally. I can't, that, that, that to me is just like, that's impressive as shit. <laughs> yeah. You're like, Hey, like, I can't, how do you do that? Yeah. <laughs> I can see we that. Spent, we spent, uh, we just spent eight weeks on with Alice and Chains and corn. Right. And that's like not our crowd of people. You know what I'm saying? And I, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe five to 1500 of our people would show up a day the tickets were so expensive. You know what I mean? Like the tickets down front were like three and $400. So our fans aren't going to pay to come to that, you know? But, and so the purpose was for us to get in front of people that didn't know us. And I was so impressed with how he handled it. He just did it, you know, like he, and he made it like our show every night, like, you know, like a bunch of other people's fans. It was really cool. Like to see, but I don't, I didn't get that gene. I did not get that one. I don't know. My favorite, my favorite part about being a musician isn't, uh, isn't that side of it. Like my favorite part is the writing. That's what I really love the most. Sure. Like being a songwriter to me is like, that's just the dream. That's, right. the, that's the world's coolest job. That's the pinnacle. Yeah. Like being a song, being a songwriter is the world's coolest job. Fact. There's no cooler job in the world. Sure. <laughs> Fact. To um, me. Right. You know? That's what, you, yeah, that's what it gives you the life in order to obviously continue, um, you know, doing yep. what you're doing from everything else. So, yeah. Um, the, the last question I want to an, or I wanted to ask, and this is super, super random, but, uh, I'm just very, very curious because I know. So, you know, when define the great line came out, um, you know, that record changed a lot of people's opinions about under oath because, you know, it was so heavy, so dark. Um, you know, a lot of people, I mean, I myself was, you know, I, I enjoyed you guys through every iteration and, you know, only chasing safety I enjoyed, but then define came out and I was like, yo, I could see a lot of people being bummed at this because, you know, it's definitely not as poppy as they should be or whatever. Um, and then I know, I mean, obviously the record did well from a commercial perspective, but you know, you guys were clearly leaning into a lot of your own personal influences that are on the darker side of music, whether it was like, you know, ISIS, cult of Luna, neurosis, that sort of stuff. Like you're like, yeah, we can write an eight minute song. No problem. Um, Anyways, I, leading up to this question, <laughs> the idea that you guys, you know, wore these influences on your sleeve, and I, I know that you were asking bands of that sort of like ilk of like you know whatever a band like Cult of Luna, where it's like, hey guys, we'd love to tour with you, but then you know there was reservations from a band like that because they're like, hey, you know, we know Under Oath to be this like you know Christian hardcore band, and like they have you know, this record that is kind of cool, but like, you know, under oath isn't cool, you know, like quote unquote, cool. I use that air quotes, you know, um, do you yeah. remember, like, do you remember having some of those experiences where you guys were trying to put together interesting tour packages that you guys were obviously fans of, but then either you were too concerned about the way that, uh, you know, maybe your fans would perceive this band or bands would say no, because they're like, dude, under oath isn't cool. These guys are kind of lame. You know, I mean, it's cool. They played a lot of people, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but I don't know if that happened. No, 
that's what happened. That's that's verbatim what happened. Okay, that's it. Okay, like, you nailed it. Like we wanted to tour with bands like that. I can't remember if we asked specifically Cult of Luna or ISIS or whatever, but yeah, we wanted to tour with bands, and they thought we were just like kitty band. Right. You know, that was just like a flash in the pan band. Sure. You know, um, and all those guys take it seriously now. A lot of them do, you know, which is really cool. Yeah. But like back then they didn't, back then we were like a pop, cheesy pop punk band to a lot of those people, which is funny because when you listen to that record, it's like the weirdest music ever. Absolutely. You know, but for whatever, yeah, for whatever reason, you know, they, they wouldn't tour with us. None of them would. And I think a lot of that had to do with, like the faith-based thing, you know. Um, we didn't really tour with any Christian, many Christian bands at all, but for whatever reason, the bands that we liked have heard about that, and in our songs, especially on the Find a Great Line, and they're only just the ones about like faith in that manner at all. We sang about like what we felt. It was never like a worship song, you know what I mean? But for whatever reason, that was the only thing those bands could grab onto, you know. Sure. In which, in, in hindsight, I understand it. You know what I mean? Like, I understand why bands wouldn't want to tour with us. Sure. Like, but because I'm, we're a quote Christian band, you know? Yeah. Because there's so much stigma connected to evangelical Christianity, especially God, especially now. I can't, you know? Yeah. So I, I'm sure. I'm sure though there was a lot of frustration internally of you guys being like. I wish that they would just like, you know, like I wish we could just get coffee and they could realize that like we're normal people. And like the, you know, the, the music, totally. that, right. Like the music that we play is really reflective of our tastes. Like we, we like your band. Like that's why we're asking you. Totally. You know, I, there's an old cheesy thing that goes, don't, don't, uh, don't meet your heroes, you know? And I remember meeting a certain producer uh, who did a lot of those bands and we wanted to use them for our record and he was such an ass to us. Really? You know, and I, I remember just us being like, well, fuck that, let's just do things our own way. You know, like, and it's interesting how that all, that all shook loose, you know, and to find a good line wouldn't be here, wouldn't be what it is if we hadn't essentially just got our friends and made it ourselves because we tried to go meet with one of those hipster cool producers and he just was a butthole to us and, you know, his process was really shoddy and we just, it's pivoted, you yeah. know. Uh, I don't think I don't think we have we would have the, that record that we have now. But if if we would have done things the way that we wanted to, you know, we wanted to be cool like those guys, and it just never clicked. Like we were never invited into that club, um, and I think because we were never invited into that club, it gave us longevity. You know what I mean? Like we weren't we like we weren't part of a club. I'm not saying that club was a bad thing, but like no. we weren't allowed in. So now we're just a rock band. You know what I mean? Like we went from being that genreized thing to now just being a rock band mm-hmm. that is successful 15 years later. And, you know, we've all been given really cool opportunities. And I think that that was sort of the universe's way of keeping us out of like a fad, you know, or a click or anything like that. So I'm thankful for it, you know? No, for sure. And I, I mean, I, I personally, really recognize that in the record just because like, I, you know, like we were talking about earlier, it's like, you know, being able to listen to, you know, a variety of different bands, like, you know, I could listen to under oath and then obviously could listen to ISIS in the same breath and like, you know, completely enjoy both records. Whereas like, you know, whereas uh, other people, like you were talking about, like, you know, there's these weird barriers to entry where it's just like, you know, whatever, if someone devoid of context, like plop down, 
you know, to find a great line and, you know, some of those other records back to back and people just listen to them, you know, of course, like there's elements that they would recognize like, Oh, like, you know, this band would never sing or whatever, but like for the most part, you know, like 90% of it, you could be like, Oh yeah, it's kind of, you know, interchangeable. Like, I don't know what this band is. (laughs) And it just, to me, on the outside, it always frustrated me looking at you guys being like, hey, like we want to be not uh, not part of this club, but like we want to be able to, you know, showcase these uh, bands that we enjoy and like actually would love watching every night on tour. Um, but then, you know, for all of these artificial reasons get put in, you know, all, all these artificial barriers got put in the way. And I was just, you know, mm, I, yeah. I was. Hey, that's how it is. Yeah. That's how it is now. You know what I mean? Like, that's just. Yeah, it's just that's just that's how music's always been. Yeah. It's always been you got to be part of a club, dude. And I think that's a, it's annoying. Like we're talking about it in the annoying light, but I think it's also a good thing. I think it also protects, like I don't know, it protects the music in a way. You know what I mean? Like, and it's there's only a certain amount of it you can take before you snap and just start doing whatever you want, like we I did. But like I think that it also like keeps things sacred. You know what I mean? That's like, true, yeah. Yeah, in some weird like backdoor way. So yeah, no, yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. Um, well, th- last last question, I promise. W- with the fact that no, um, you know where you are at, obviously in, in your personal life, because you are. Uh, do you have a child? I'm, I'm totally blanking. If you have a kiddo. You, yeah, no, you said, yeah, that's, earlier, yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, he's seven. Right. Okay. Um, and so, you know, you, you live in a world in which you've had a very, you know, unique perspective of, um, you know, subcultures, um, you know, religion, all of these things, you know, how do you think all of that kind of reflects around your head, obviously, as you are, you know, raising a child where it's just like, Hey, I have a, you know, I've lived a pretty unconventional life. Like, um, you know, my kid doesn't recognize that cause he just views me as dad. Um, but you know, how does that kind of influence your, I guess, sort of parenting, as it were? Um, I don't know. It's like asking somebody why they're normal is they're normal. Sure. You know, I don't. <laughs> I have no idea. I, I just try to be the best man I can be, and you know, you're not around as much as you'd like to be, but you Facetime every day, and you try to make sure you, you implement things that keep you. Great, in the sense of like, you know, if you have that scheduled time every day, you give that time to your child. You know what I'm saying? Sure. But at the same time, it's like, you know, how many kids are seven that have been to Australia and New Zealand and wherever the hell else you take it? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like that's the other thing. It's like, it's cool. It's hard because you miss a lot of stuff, but it's also cool. So it's like, I don't know. Yeah, you're just figuring I, it out like all of us. <laughs> yeah, I, dude, honestly, it's like, it's that thing where you're just like, yeah, I just, I figure what before the next one hits, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, there's just not, parenting is like, I heard someone say once, parenting is the ultimate experience. And it's also the ultimate experiment. You know what I mean? Like, you don't, like, my dad used to say, he used to go, you know, on your first birthday, we were just excited we didn't kill you. Meaning, like, you know, we're, we were just excited that you didn't die because we didn't know what we were doing. You know what I mean? Like, totally. So having a, having a seven-year-old, you, I look at him some days, and I'm like, dude, we we got here. Yeah, I'm you just know? glad you're here. Like, yeah. all this, <laughs> totally. <laughs> like, we got here, and he's, like, brilliant and and filled with, filled with wonder and precocious as hell. And, you know, 
to realize that you had a part in making that is it's a, it's an honor, you know. It's the it's the highest honor, I think, as a person is to father or mother a child. That's the highest honor there is. So, yeah. No. No. I yeah. I, agree. I just try to live up to that and just hope that you uh the rest comes out in the washing machine yeah no i totally understand i have an eight-year-old i exact same way just like every time i look at him just like i can't believe you're here this is unbelievable this is so wild it's the best it's the best it is it is well aaron thank you so much for hanging out dude it was really fun you know picking your brain and uh, and a good time rad great conversations right i loved the chat with frankie and i loved the chat with aaron It just makes me so happy to bring these conversations to you and really kind of get to know these people because, um, yeah, I'm just really passionate about that. So next week we have a, just another unbelievable conversation that I'm excited to bring you. And that is with Ian McFarland. He uh, was in a band called blood for blood, but most recently and more importantly in my eyes, he is a director of a movie called the Godfathers of hardcore about agnostic front. And we talk so much about the process of putting together a movie and it was, it was just really, really engaging because, um, yeah, he's a hustler. He's a guy that wants to bring his vision to life and will spare no expense to do that. So Ian is on the show next week and, um, yeah, please be safe, everybody. Hey miles. Yes. It's Jack from work. Yes. Hi. Did you know that we host a daily news and culture podcast where people can go to get caught up on what is happening? Are you, yes, are you confused about that? You're talking about the Daily Zeitgeist, the show that we do every day. I just to make sure you knew, and that everybody knew, that you could listen to us every day, twice a day, talk about what is happening, and they could learn everything without feeling the life drain from their soul. Yeah, I think at the Daily Zeitgeist, we like to give people a balance of just enough news that they feel informed, and just enough laughs that they're not overwhelmed and can have a decent day after listening. So guys, listen to the Daily Zeitgeist on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are given away for free.